Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. You guys can take a seat. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. Hope all of you had a great Thanksgiving. And I hope you're as excited for Christmas as I am. We're kicking off a brand new series this morning called A Weary World Rejoices. And I don't know about you guys, but I feel like in this busy world where everything seems to move at breakneck speed and so many things feel almost hopelessly broken, it's easy to find myself feeling worn down and weary. Like I'm just desperate for something better and something more. And I'm guessing I'm not alone in that. And so this Christmas, we just want to talk about how we can rejoice in the middle of the craziness, how we can find joy and hope and peace in the middle of weariness, because I really do believe God wants to fill our souls with all of those things in this season. But before we jump into A Weary World Rejoices, I need to address the elephant in the room. Because unless this is your first time visiting Revision or your first time watching online, and if that's you, welcome. We're super excited that you're here. The rest of you are wondering, hey, last Sunday was Commitment Sunday for Build the Future, and literally hundreds and hundreds of us turned in pledge cards, and our goal was to raise $750,000 so that we could get a permanent space that allows Revision to keep chasing this mission of helping people meet Jesus and follow Him fully with everything we've got. So did we get there? What's the answer? How good do we do? And the answer is, I'll tell you next week. And I realize that sounds awful and mean and cruel, but there are two big reasons for it. Number one, there are a whole lot of people who are out of town, and I want as many of us to be together as possible for that announcement. But number two, and more importantly, I don't know yet. It turns out counting pledge cards for a capital campaign is a lot like counting ballots in Nevada, Arizona, and California. You just can't do that in a day or a week. But we have people who weren't here that are turning in cards this week, some emails that are still coming in, and so we're not quite sure where the whole thing is going to land. But by next week, we'll have a better idea, and I will share that with you. And then no matter what the final result is, whether we get there or don't quite get there, get above and beyond there, no matter what it is, we're going to celebrate together because God is doing a thing and God is going to continue doing a thing and we're going to move forward from wherever we are toward the future he has for Revision Church. So I'm excited about that, but I'm also excited for this Weary World Rejoices series and I realize once again, it's awful and terrible for me to make you wait an extra week to hear that news. It feels almost excruciating, right? But I actually think an excruciating wait is a great way to start celebrating the Christmas season. (laughs) Let me explain why. Christmas is a nostalgic season. I think the reason so many people love it so much is that it's this month full of memories and traditions, some traditions that we love, some that we hate, some we're embarrassed of. And I think if we all got together and compared our experience of Christmas as adults, there'd be some differences in the stories. But if we got together and compared our experience of Christmas as children, we'd all share a really similar story. It was awful to wait. Like Christmas is just this season as a kid of excruciating waiting where it feels like it's the longest month ever. For adults, it's the shortest month in the world. It's busy, it's crazy, all of a sudden, 
bam, Christmas is here and it's upon you. But for a kid, it just feels like the never-ending month of the year. And there's different ways different families mark that. Maybe your family does like calendars with chocolates in them or a chalkboard that you write the date on. Growing up, my family always made chains out of red and green construction paper. And we'd rip off one link every day to mark down how many days were left until the 25th. And like, do you just, just like, do you remember what it was like as a kid? The all-consuming weight. It was terrible. And as a parent, it's hilarious. Like, I love watching it. I remember a few years ago, uh, one of our twins, Tommy, had to be about four or five years old, and he just got to mid-December and was sick of it. He was frustrated. There was too many days left till Christmas. And so he came up with a brilliant plan. He said, you know what I'm going to do? Today I'm going to rip off two chains. <laughs> Until his bubble was immediately burst by his big sister who told him, Tommy, ripping off two chains will not make Christmas come faster. It will just make you the idiot with a too small chain. <laughs> Emma has always had a sweet way about her. But it's true, and watching that interaction, like I laughed, and then I thought, man, how many of us feel like Tommy? How many of us, in the middle of the brokenness of our lives, in the middle of the frustration that we experience, think, when can I get rid of these chains? How quickly can I rip off the chains of my frustration, and the chains of my pain, and the chains of my loss, and the chains of my hurt? When is life going to be better than the way it is right now? Because I am weary waiting for that. You know, Christmas is supposed to be this season of joy, but... Honestly, I think that's a pretty thin veneer because for many of us, if you could dig down beneath the reindeer and the cookies and the presents and the trees and the ugly sweaters, we're weary. And we look out at a messed up world and at the struggles and imperfections in our own lives and our hope starts to flicker out like it's a candle at the end of its wick and we're not sure how much longer it's got. I know there are a lot of us in here this morning who are in that space and for those of us who aren't, we have been. We all know what it's like to be broken, frustrated, and waiting for something, for anything, wondering if God forgot about us, if he's hearing us, if he's listening, if he cares, if he's paying attention at all. And our bad day that turned into a bad week has turned into a bad season, and it kind of feels like it's turning into a bad life, and it's never going to be over, and we're going to be waiting forever. And the truth is waiting, especially when it feels like we're waiting in pain or waiting in frustration, can suck the joy right out of life. It can cut us off from the beauty God says we were made to live with, and it will cut us off from that beauty if we don't learn to wait well. So this morning, as we kick off this Christmas season, in the middle of a messed up world where so many of our souls are weary, I want to begin by taking a look at what God has to tell us about waiting well, waiting in a way that allows us to rejoice even though we're weary and find hope even though we're hurting. And I'll tip my hand right off the bat. I think the key to that is reframing the whole idea of waiting in our minds. Today we're going to look at the story of a couple who waited well, and what we're going to discover is that waiting isn't just an action, it's an attitude. 
I'm going to say that again louder for the people in the back and the people online, because this is a game changer when we begin to wrap our minds around it. Waiting isn't just an action, it's an attitude. Specifically, it's a decision to bend our lives toward the belief that God is everything he promised us he is, and he will follow through on doing everything he promised us he would do. Because when we believe that, everything begins to change. And honestly, that's the whole spirit of the Christmas story. At the beginning of time, God promised Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, after they rejected him and, and broke the world, that he would send a savior to rescue a fallen humanity. And then the entire world waited for millennia and millennia. And thousands of years later, God added a little bit more clarity to that promise through the prophet Isaiah who wrote, the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Isaiah wrote that down, and then everybody waited again. For almost eight centuries, they waited, half of which was this period of time known as the intertestamental period. It's the, the gap between Malachi and Matthew in your Bibles. It's 400 years where God was silent. The world was all sorts of messed up. Israel was conquered by numerous pagan powers, and God said nothing. For centuries and centuries they waited, and then light and an angel chorus exploded into the night sky over Bethlehem, and the world changed forever. See, the beauty of Christmas is this annual reminder that we are not the first people in the history of the world to feel the way we feel. When the infinite became an infant, when God stepped out of eternity into the fabric of the human story, he did that right into a world that was a whole lot like ours, one filled with injustice and division and uncertainty and hatred and violence and more. And the beautiful thing about that is that Christmas is a reminder that God sees us in the middle of our pain. God knows exactly who we are because at just the right moment, he stepped in. The Apostle Paul kind of ex- explains it and clarifies it like this in Galatians 4.4. 4, he says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. This phrase we translate set time had fully comes this Greek idiom, pleroma to chrono. Pleroma means full. It was used to refer to a ship that had been so loaded down with cargo, it couldn't carry a single more thing. And chrono is where we get the word chronology, time, like a clock. And what Paul's explaining here is that even though for hundreds and hundreds of years it felt like God was silent, Christmas wasn't this thing that God suddenly remembered like, oh yeah, I forgot about humanity there for a while. No, 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 no. Christmas was the result of everything God had been doing behind the curtain of the world for generations. In the fullness of time, the Pleroma to Krona, when the moment was brimming with potential at the exact right instance, God stepped in. You guys may know this already, or it may be new information to you, but during that entire intertestamental period, those, those hundreds of years, there was always a remnant of Jewish people who waited and prayed 
daily for the arrival of the Messiah, this one that God had promised in Genesis and Isaiah and throughout the Old Testament. And century after century, they were faithful and they prayed and they obeyed and they woke up every morning believing, hoping that maybe today would be the day. And I think there's something we can learn from them about waiting well when we're weary. And I want to introduce you to a couple of them today. Their names are Zechariah and Elizabeth. They actually play a critical role in the Christmas story because before that Bethlehem night could be the play Roma to Chrono, God had to fulfill a promise that there would be a prophet that preceded the Messiah, the voice of one calling in the desert, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Zechariah and Elizabeth are that guy's parents. And we read about their story in Luke. So if you have a Bible or a Bible handy this morning, you can crack it open to Luke chapter 1. If you hit Mark, keep going. If you hit John, go back. If you don't have a Bible and you need one or your kids need one, we have them in a bunch of different colors for a bunch of different ages, back of the Next Steps table. We love it when they disappear. Please take one. Take a reading plan before you go today. We would just be happy to have you with a copy of the Bible in your hands. But we're going to pick up this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. And this story is, is meaningful to me. And I hope it'll be meaningful to you because I think for all of us who've ever found ourselves thinking that waiting is frustrating, for all of us who've ever found ourselves wondering if God hears us or if he's listening at all, their story in many ways is our story. That's what we read. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Right off the bat, Luke lets us know these two are pastor's kids. And not just pastor's kids, they're like pastor's grandkids. Like their their grandpa and their great-grandpa and their great-great-grandpa. And not only are they from a long line of pastors, but Zechariah is a priest. And both of them are living faithfully. Luke says they're blamelessly keeping the law of the Lord. And if you've ever read the Old Testament, you know, that's a lot of work. There are a whole lot of commands. But here they are, bending their life toward being who God called them to be. And toward the hope God called them to hope. And what's fascinating about that is that they're living. They're aiming their lives in the direction their lives are aimed in based on promises that are thousands and thousands of years old. Like even though it felt like God maybe forgot about his people and abandoned them, even though God had been silent for hundreds of years and Israel was in a bad spot, they are still chasing after him with absolutely everything they've got. And so you hear that and you think, wow, they're pretty admirable people. Life must be going well for them. Check out the next verse. It says, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. So here they are doing everything God asks them to do, and God rewards that faithfulness by not giving them an heir, which was like hugely disappointing, but not just that. It was shameful in that culture. People believed that a woman who couldn't have children was cursed by God because of something she had done wrong. When you zoom out and think about that, that's awful, and it's heartbreaking, And not only that, but as important as babies are in our culture, they were even more important in that culture. And I'm not trying to be offensive, this is just history, but women weren't allowed to own property. Women were barely seen as fully human. Their value in the world was measured by their ability to have and raise children. And here's Elizabeth. 
like chasing after God in the middle of this society. And she's walking around every single day, weary, underneath a huge cloud of shame. Because that dream for her is over. He's old, she's old, the dream is dead. But still they have faith in God. Still they're living the way that he asked them to live. And it's crazy because they're orienting their lives around this ancient promise God made to Abraham. And this is like Old Testament 101. God came to Abraham. He said, hey, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And through you, all the peoples of the world are going to be blessed. Like, I'm going to bless the entire world through you. And if you know the story, there was a time where it looked like that might happen. Abraham had a son who had a son who had a whole bunch of sons. And they went down to Egypt and they became a great nation. And they got enslaved. But they escaped slavery and made their way to the promised land and conquered it. And then David built it into this beautiful kingdom. And Solomon expanded that kingdom in terms of wealth and territory, and it looked like, hey, this is happening. I can totally see how God is going to change the world through this people. And then it fell apart completely. There were wars and conquests and evil kings. I mean, between the time of Solomon and the time of Zechariah and Elizabeth, Israel changed hands at least 25 times. They were conquered by the Babylonians, the Syrians, the Greeks, the Romans. They lost absolutely all influence in international affairs. I mean, they actually got picked up and yanked out of their land for 70 years and exiled in a completely different place. There was no way. At the time, Zechariah and Elizabeth were living that anybody thought Israel was going to be anything. And anyone who still had doubts... And he was still thought, well, well, maybe we could become a kingdom again. Well, maybe God could still do something big again. Those doubts were erased in 65 BC when Pompey, who was the greatest general of the Roman Empire outside of Julius Caesar, or maybe Scipio Africanus, if you're a huge history nerd. If that's you, come find me later. We'll geek out on Roman general rankings. But like Pompey conquered Jerusalem. And he pushed right past the priests who were trying to stop him, walked into the temple where he wasn't supposed to be, walked back into the Holy of Holies where God said only the high priest was allowed to go once per year on penalty of death. But when he went in there, it wasn't an Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark situation where like the angels came out and melted his face off because that's what everyone was hoping for. God didn't strike him down with lightning. Instead, he walked back out and he's like, I didn't even see a God in there. <laughs> Jupiter must be more powerful than the God of the Jews. Zechariah was a boy when that happened, and there is no doubt that the day was burned into his memory when his dad came home wrecked and heartbroken that the Roman general had defiled the temple and God had done nothing. And yet, he still went into the priesthood. He still married a girl who was chasing after God. They still oriented their lives around the belief that God would somehow deliver on all of his promises. But a lot of people didn't. In that era, there were a lot of Jews who quit believing. They got weary in the waiting, and they walked away from faith. And i got to be honest with you, I think if I was alive in that time, I would have been tempted to join them. A lot of us probably would have been tempted to, to whisper to Zechariah and Elizabeth, it's over. Quit believing. This dusty little corner of the Roman Empire called Israel does not matter anymore. And it will never matter again. God, if there ever was a God, has abandoned you. But if that's what we told them in that moment, we would have been wrong. 
Let's check out what happens next. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of incense, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. All right, so he's in the temple alone, performing this priestly duty that was like a once in a lifetime you got chosen to do this opportunity for a priest. And this is what happens. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear, which is what happens every time an angel shows up in the Bible. So anytime I hear modern accounts of like an angel came and held me and it was warm, I think that's not a Bible angel. But anyways, like he gets scared and the angel's like, don't be afraid because that's how Bible angels always have to start. And the angel says, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. You didn't think God was listening. You didn't think God was going to answer this prayer, but your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. And he later picked up the nickname The Baptist after he grabbed people and held their heads underwater for a while. So describing someone's occupation badly line right there. But like, it was for a good cause. But John the Baptist, he's like, he's going to be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, because remember, a lot of them got weary in the waiting, and they quit and they walked away, but John's going to bring them back, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah, you are going to have a baby and that baby is going to be the one the prophets were talking about, the voice of the one calling in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord. This is a cool moment. I sit there and I just like, I close my eyes this week and try to imagine it and I cannot even picture what it must have been like to have an angel show up and say the words, your prayer has been heard. I think as much as those words were for Zechariah in this exact specific moment, they're written down in the book of Luke for us, for you and for me, for all of us who have ever prayed and waited and waited and prayed and wondered if God was listening at all, for all of us who've ever felt like the wait is so frustrating, he must have forgotten about us. There are a couple things in this story I want us to see that I believe will allow us to rejoice even in the middle of our weariness. And the first one is this. Even though God is sometimes silent, God is never sitting still. Like even when we don't see it, he's working. Even when we can't feel it, he's working. He's the way maker, promise keeper, miracle worker, light in the darkness, and he hears us. I love that line, your prayer has been heard so much because I'm tempted constantly when, when my prayers don't get answered in the way that I want them answered. On the timeline, I was hoping they'd be answered on to just believe God must not be listening at all. He must not care. He, he just, he quit on me. And then I read this story and realize that nothing could be further from the truth. Like Zechariah and Elizabeth, they prayed for a baby in their 20s. My baby didn't come. And they prayed for a baby in their 30s and a baby didn't come. And in desperation, they prayed in their 40s and a baby didn't come. And maybe just for kicks, they prayed in their 50s and a baby didn't come. And now God says, hey, I was listening all along and you're going to have a baby. So cool. But there's a problem. Um, Zechariah is not dumb. 
See, the thing is, they hadn't made all the medical advancements that we've made today, but he did know the science of it. And so he's like, I don't think that works good. And he looks at the angel, he's like, ah, how's that going to happen? I'm old. And my wife is, oh, snap. Nope. When angels appear, they write this stuff down. I'm not calling her old. Uh, my wife is well along in years. And what happens next is so cool because this angel is like dumbfounded that this guy would dare to not believe a message he got from an angel. The angel looks at him and goes, oh no, uh uh-uh, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you're going to be silent and not able to speak until the day it happens because you didn't believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Like when the time is full, the play Roma to Chrono, God's going to make this thing happen. This is like one of my favorite parts of the whole Bible because Gabriel looks at Zechariah and he's like, oh, look who knows so much. Are you an angel? Oh, no, you're not. I'm an angel. Oh, that's, that's right. I'm an angel, and you're going to mouth off to me. Guess what's going to happen with your big mouth? Nothing for the next 10 months. That's what's going to happen with it. Like, when God says something's going to happen, it happens. That's how we do things around here. And notice, he tells Zechariah, the baby thing had a set time. So God's been working. You didn't see it, but God's been working. And he's writing a better story than the one you would have written. If he gave you a pen and paper in your 20s, you would have written a story, but you might not have had a kid that absolutely changed the world. God is setting you up to have this kid to change the world because that's been his plan all along. That's the second thing I want us to see in the story this morning is this, even though waiting makes us weary, and it does, it does, even though waiting makes us weary, if it's not God's time, you can't force it. And when it is God's time, you can't stop it. Not even your doubt, not even your fear, not even your lack of faith can stop it. And we see that in Zechariah's story. We know he didn't believe that this was going to come true. And we know it because of the way Luke writes the story. Because it almost seems on the surface as you read it like he asked a fairly innocuous question. The angel's like, you're going to have a baby. He's like, we're too old for that stuff, right? But Luke draws a really sharp contrast on purpose between an angel visiting Zechariah in chapter 1 and an angel visiting Mary in chapter 2. Both of them got told, you're going to have a miracle, baby. And both of them responded by asking, how? And one of them got blessed and the other one got cursed. And it's not just a matter of like, you know, Zechariah got an angry angel and Mary got a nice one. It was luck of the draw and who was near God who he sent that day. It was the same guy both times. It's Gabe, right? And he tells Mary, but what we know is that they asked this out of a different heart. Mary's like, okay, 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 I believe you, but can you explain the science to me so that I understand what I need to do? And Gabriel's like, oh yeah, let me tell you how this whole thing's going to happen. Zechariah said, I know the science. I don't believe you. And Gabriel said, shh, right? <laughs> But guess what? He still had a baby. It didn't stop what God was going to do. God still blessed Zechariah and Elizabeth with the baby that he promised them, even though Zechariah didn't think there was a way it could happen. And I am so profoundly grateful for that deep in my soul, because I'll tell you what, if my level of faith determines God's level of movement in my life, 
Like, if me having no fear and no doubt is a prerequisite for God to take action in my story, then he's never going to move in my life because I got plenty of both of those. If my weariness inhibits God from doing the stuff God wants to do, then he's not going to be able to do that stuff because I am weary. But thank God, that's not how God moves. It's just not what he does. And man, I don't know about you guys, but in the moments when I'm weary from praying and waiting and waiting and praying, I'm thankful God doesn't move like that. Because I I come to him with the Zechariah mindset a whole lot more often than I come with a Mary mindset. Like, I know it won't happen, and here's all the reasons why, and ugh. But God is so good. When it's his time, we can't stop it. He's writing a better story than the one we could write. He, he does his thing despite our human frailty. And I just, like, I love it. I think about the story of Zechariah. Here he is. I've been praying for this for decades. It's the greatest news of his life. Who's the person he wants to tell most? Elizabeth. He's got to go home and tell her, like, hey, you're going to have a baby. And then he gets home, and he's like, she's like, what are we playing, charades, bird? You're hungry. You're hungry for a bird. It's not even Thanksgiving. I'll cook a turkey, <laughs> right? But, like, in this moment, he's got to tell her without even using words, and still, still God does his thing. Like, they couldn't force it when it wasn't God's time, but they couldn't stop it when it was God's time. And the same exact thing is true for us. In this shattered world, where our lives are not always the way we want them to be, we can have hope while we're waiting. We can rejoice while we're weary. We can wait well in a way that doesn't suck the beauty out of life or the life out of us because we know that waiting isn't just an action, it's an attitude. It's a decision to believe that God will deliver on every promise he's ever made to us. And Hebrews 11 tells us, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That's a powerful verse. It's also one that most of us never live out. It's like a total lie for our lives. It's just a bunch of baloney. Like, if you look at your life, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm totally confident in what I hope for and assured of what I do not see. If that's you, you are not like me at all because I got no faith in that. I actually think you could explain a whole lot of human misery and a whole lot of human frustration and a whole lot of our pain and a whole lot of our weariness by coming to the realization that as human beings, we tend to have a whole lot more faith in what we have than we do in what we hope for. We believe a whole lot more in what we've got than in what God says he's promising us. Have you ever met somebody who's dating someone they don't like? Like, he's such a jerk, he never calls, he doesn't pay attention to me, ah, and you're like, well, break up with him. No, he's the boyfriend I got. Like, I can change him, he's never going to change. I can change him. You're really saying I can change him is saying, well, he's not what I hope for, but what he, he's what I got. So now I got to hope that what I got is going to become what I hoped for. Or like jobs. I talk to people every week who hate their jobs, hate their boss, they hate it. You ever thought about quitting? No, there's a job I got. Or life. Like I meet with people on a weekly basis in my job who hate their lives. And you're like, if you know Jesus, how do you get to that point? But I think people are just weary from all of the brokenness and they end up in this spot where they hate their lives and they're still clinging to the brokenness. 
Like we believe more in what we've got than what we hope for. We have more confidence in the shattered things we're clinging to than in the beautiful things God promises us. And it makes us weary. It makes us doubt that he's actually good. It makes us doubt that he's listening. But we can wait well when we begin to have confidence based on who God has always been, that God will continue to fulfill his promises for us. Hope allows us to wait well when we're weary. And faith is all about hope. But here's the thing about hope. Hope only exists in the future. Hope can't live in the past. Regret can live in the past, but hope can't. And hope doesn't exist in the present. That's the felt human crisis existentialism has tried and completely failed to solve. Hope only exists in the future. And the Bible tells us that faith is hoping in what we don't yet have, which means faith makes us future-oriented creatures. That's what sets us apart from every other living thing on this planet. Because there are no anteaters or elephants or oak trees sitting around dreaming about a better future. Like, I hope God can write me a better story. Anteaters are just going to eat ants and then die. That's it. But not us. Not us. We have hope for a better future because we know the one who holds the future. We know that the pain we're living in, that the frustration that we're living in, that the weariness we're living in does not get to write the final chapter of our story. Jesus does. And so hope is real for us just as much as it was real for Zechariah and Elizabeth. So even though life is still hard, even though the world is all sorts of messed up, even though fear and doubt creep into our souls every single day of our lives, we can wait well knowing that in the fullness of time, the Pleroma Tucranu, God will deliver on everything he promised us he would deliver on. He will be to us everything that he says he is. He hears us and he will show up for us in the same way that he showed up for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Like we can wait in a way that doesn't make us weary because we know that even though what we've got isn't what we hoped for, God is at work behind the curtain of the world to make sure that what we hope for will one day be what we've got. He is setting all things right and making all things new. And so my hope this morning is that all of us can walk out of here with this deep conviction in our souls that we have a hope more powerful than all of the darkness that surrounds us that we can step back into these lives where we're frustrated with things, where we're feeling weary with an active hope, with a way of waiting that doesn't make us weary any longer because we know that God hears us and God loves us and God cares and God is writing a better story than one we could write. He's setting all things right and making all things new. And I think when we believe that, like when we know that we know that we know it, it doesn't just allow us to rejoice in the middle of our weariness. It allows us to help other people do that as well. It allows us to pour hope and joy out all over a shattered world where the candle of hope is flickering out all over the place and people are desperate. And so my prayer in this season is that we would not only wait well and hope big, but that we would pour hope out all over the people around us. So we'd be hope dealers because our world is desperate for it in this Christmas season. And even though we're weary, because God is who he says he is, we have plenty in a way that allows us to live every second with confidence that you hear us and that you love us and that you are setting all things right and making all things new. And Lord, I, I pray that today, that this week, that this Christmas season, we would be prisoners of hope 
that we would hope big in a way that allows us to step into the broken spaces around us and point other people toward your love and toward your grace and toward your greatness. Lord, would we be hope dealers in this season? Would you help us? Even though we're weary and even though our world is still a long way away from being the way we want it to be, to rejoice because we know who you are and we know the story you're writing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.